Sports and Stuff Podcast, presented by Team Media. Here's your host, DTJ. Welcome to the Sports and Stuff Podcast, presented by Team Media. For more information about the team, visit our website, www.theteam.media, or on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The Team LLC. This show can also be found on your favorite podcast streaming platform, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, Spotify, TuneIn, and starting this week, Deezer. Wherever you get your favorite podcast content, look us up. Thompson Entertainment and Media. Each week, we dive headfirst into the world of sports and select a few topics that we think will garner the most conversation. We're always interested in your take and invite you to share on our website or on social media. This week, I want to talk a little boxing, a little MLB, a lot of NFL, and the retirement of a hockey great. But first, let's start with the best thing I've heard in sports this week. The undisputed lightweight champion of the world, the takeover, Teofimo Lopez! A star is born tonight. Teal, you made history tonight at just 23-year-old becoming the undisputed champion, all four belts. Describe the feeling. Um, uh, I got to thank God. And this is for um, my boy that passed away earlier this year, two days before Kobe passed away. May, may Kobe rest in peace. Um, this is for Dione. And um, I had to dig deep, man. Um, I'm thankful. I'm grateful. And each and every day I take that in. Um, I thank God first, man, because I couldn't do it without him. I walked by faith for a reason. And I had to dig in there. And now uh, it feels good. In that 11th round, right before you came out for the 12th, your father said, you've got the victory. Just go out there and box. But you didn't do that. Why? I'm a fighter. I got to dig in deep. I know he was coming. I can't give him that. I don't know if they got him up on the scorecards or not. And I love to fight. I could bang, too. I don't care, man. I'll take one to give one. And uh, that's what a true champion does. I come out there and I find a way to win. That's the sound of Tiafimo Lopez giving post-fight comments to ESPN's Bernardo Osuna after his stunning upset win over Vasily Lomachenko in Saturday night's much-anticipated lightweight unification bout for the WBA, WBO, IBF and Ring Magazine titles from the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. Lopez won on all three scorecards, Steve Weinfeld scoring at 117-111, Tim Chatham scoring at 116-112, and Julie Letterman, who is notorious for suspect scoring, giving it 119-109, essentially only giving one round to Lomachenko, which is bogus to me. At home, I actually had the fight scored 114-114 as a draw. I thought Loma dominated round 7 through 11. I did give Lopez the 12th. I could also understand if you gave Lopez rounds 1 through 6, as Loma effectively did nothing in those rounds. So even a 115-113 would have been understandable. Letterman's score just rubbed me the wrong way. 
and reminded me of what's wrong in boxing and its subjective nature of scoring. How do we know judges aren't carrying some bias or other motivation that affects their scoring? Also, how do you critique how to critique a fight? There needs to be more of a consideration of actual punch that's balanced against the eye test. There is a better way to judge a fight, but that's for another conversation. At the end of the day, I can't disagree with the outcome in that Lopez did the most work, working the body, winning the early rounds, and sustaining through an eventual onslaught of Loma in the later rounds. I hope there will be a second fight, and if yes, I just think Loma will learn from his mistakes and turn in a masterpiece. For now, congrats to the new champ. Last week, chairman of the New York Yankees, Hal Steinbrenner, sat down with ESPN Radio's Michael Kay and Don LaGreca to talk about his disappointments over the season. Here's a clip from that interview. Well, it's been a tough weekend for me. I, I, I mean, I'm very disappointed, obviously. We invested a, a lot of time, energy, money into the team last offseason, and we all felt that we had a team that could win a championship, and we failed to do that. We didn't even come close. So, you know, at this point in time, all I can do is apologize to our fans. They deserved a better outcome than they got, period. I mean, they, have, they just did. Have you been able to sit down as you're thinking about it and, and, and put your finger on what went wrong? I just think the whole year, I just, especially with the offense, and I know we've had other issues, and we had uh, a rash of injuries the way a lot of teams do, but our offense just inconsistent at playing up to their potential to me. Um, so many lows with the ups, so many downs with the ups and highs with the lows, and, and the lows were every bit as extreme as the highs, and the highs were, were pretty good. Um, when they were on, they were on, but it just seems like every game, including some of the postseason games, I, you just couldn't tell which offense was going to show up. Who are you the most disappointed with? You know, I don't, there's, there's, there's not one individual. I guess I should be most disappointed with me. I'm responsible for all this in, in, in the end. Um, and, and look, there's numerous people in this organization that are, that feel the same way I do. But as far as one specific player, if that's what you're asking, there, there isn't one. I just, I, I didn't like what I saw in the, in the inconsistency. I, I didn't like, especially in a short season, I didn't like the, the, the lows, so many lows going with the highs. And, uh, you know, we went 50, we lost 15 out of 20. I, th- I think a rash of injuries kind of started that train. Um, but again, we got to get through that. And the last week of the season, we had no excuses, didn't play well. And uh, one or two of the playoff games, obviously. So it's just uh, it, it, it's disappointing because the expectations, of course, were so were so high. But I, I, I don't I didn't like the, the team not playing up to its potential as, as much as it did not. As I watch the World Series, I can't help but to feel that it should be the Yankees, not the Rays, facing the Dodgers. And yet a part of that is bitterness, but should in no way be taken as a slight to the Rays. They beat us straight up and they earned their spot. Though the Yankees and Rays have a brewing rivalry of their own, I put my feelings aside and rooted for them right on this very show to beat the Astros, who I detest. As much as I wanted to see the Yankees in the World Series, I equally did not want to see the Astros make it. The enemy of my enemy is my temporary friend. Still, I found Steinbrenner's comments interesting, and hopefully it will lead to meaningful changes to the roster. Look, 
There will never be another George. He is revered, loved, hated, respected, and adored, sometimes by the very same people. Hal is considered to be the more low-key of the sons, with the older and more outspoken Hank passing away earlier this year due to a lung issue. But Hal sounds like he gets it. He understands the Yankees' history and legacy, and that the fan base will not accept losing for long. Once you've tasted the promised land, you can't go back to the slums. As for the World Series, the Dodgers are currently leading two games to one after a dominant performance on Friday. A week ago, it didn't look like the Dodgers would even beat the Braves, but some clutch hitting propelled them back into the series. Game seven being capped off with the go-ahead home run hit by Cody Bellinger, who I told you in my 2020 MLB outlook would be the star of the Dodgers this season. Y'all need to go read my post. I know what I'm talking about. I had the eventual World Series matchup wrong, but I did point out that the Rays were dangerous. All in all, I think the Dodgers will win the series and bring a second championship to L.A. in a matter of weeks. Is it because I'm a West Coast native now and that championship seemed to follow me? Perhaps, but don't get it twisted. The blue I bleed is for the Bombers. Okay, a quick break. And then some NFL action. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Hey, Kevin, thinking about saving for retirement? Yeah, but how do I start? It's easy with Avvo, a retirement coach. Let's learn the Avvo bet. A is for taking action. Not anxiety? No, Kevin, you're going to be fine. You sing? Barely. V is for variety. Huh, change up my strategy. Okay. O is for optimize your savings. Let Avvo lead the way. Visit aceyourretirement.org today. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Sports and Stuff Podcast is presented by Team Media. Check us out on the web, theteam.media, or on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Team LLC. I have a lot of NFL business to discuss, but first, let's start with a recap of week six action. You know, first, it's time to include the Tennessee Titans in your conversations about top three teams in the AFC. You know, you can make a strong and persuasive argument for any of the positions. You know, when I consider a championship contender, I look at a mix of talent, coaching, execution, and heart. And for me, the Titans check all those boxes. Ryan Tannehill does enough to win games. And through week six, he has thrown for over 1,370 yards. He has 13 touchdowns, only two interceptions. And that's good enough for a 83.2 QBR, which is fourth in the league. Derrick Henry is grown. And I just don't see an answer for him in the league right now. When he gets a head full of steam, he actually reminds me of a 
Old school Chiefs, legendary running back Christian Okoye, the Nigerian nightmare. You know, their defense is good, but not great. And as I think about the team, that's likely going to be their weakness. Every game has been close, minus the week five thrashing of the Bills. Last week, they needed overtime to beat the Texans. You know, at the end of the day, they're finding a way to win, much like the 49ers were at this same time last year. Next up, a pair of birds. Vic never won a Super Bowl. Right. Matt Ryan might. Does he need to win a Super Bowl to be loved in that town, or is he already loved in that he's town? He's already loved. He's already loved. He's already, he's already been embraced. I think, he's, I think he's, he's, he's proven himself. I believe he's proven himself by, it's simply by making, making it here and having the type of season. Is he winning the MVP? Exactly. I think that, that that in itself is justification. <laughs> So you 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 fire your coach, you fire your GM, yeah. and now your owner Arthur Blank comes out and he's like, yeah, I don't know what we're about to do with Matt Ryan. So if you were in charge, what would you want to see happen? I would love to see Matt Ryan get on a very nice train, plane, or automobile with a one-way ticket to Elsa. That's that's what I would like. <laughs> I think I have the authority to speak freely on behalf of all the Atlantan uh, who, who who celebrate the fans. We gonna we need we need Matt Ryan to take brilliant. a long walk off a short field. We still have Julio. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We got like really an amazing an, an amazing Calvin fan. Ridley. Uh, hey, listen, we have a phenomenal team. Far too much talent to be over five. I ain't gonna lie. Like you know, even with even with Matt Ryan, we have far too much talent to be over five because Matt Ryan is a phenomenal quarterback. Right. I don't want to take that away from him. I just don't think he fits with this system. Unlike T.I., who I respect greatly and defer to on all things Atlanta, I don't think Matt Ryan has been your issue. Coaching and execution have been your issues. Talent, to a large degree, may have been a part of your issue. And yeah, you have Julio Jones, who is considered the best wide receiver in the game, but he can't block, kick, defend, or coach. You know, I'm happy you have your first win um, over the Vikings, no less, a dominant 40 to 23 victory. But, you know, this 2020 version of the Atlanta Falcons have way too much talent to just be one and five. In fact, I think you should be at least three and three if I'm bullish four and two, but not one and five. You know, hopefully this is a sign that you can turn your season around. As for the Uggles... The only thing as bad as that fight song is the NFC East at large. You know, I don't know who the Eagles are, and that's considering their week seven win over the Giants, which we'll talk a little bit about later. Over the Ravens, you put up enough of a fight to make the game interesting in the fourth quarter. And I thought to myself, if they play like this for the rest of the year, they have a respectable shot to win the NFC East. 
That doesn't change with you beating the Giants. And perhaps the short week played a role in how poorly the team looked. I just feel like the Eagles only play up to the level of their competition and not the very best version of themselves. Two surprise outcomes to me. First, the Bucks absolutely manhandling the Packers 38 to 10. The stats not all that impressive for Brady. 166 yards passing, two touchdowns. Ronald Jones with two touchdowns and 113 yards rushing. And Gronk getting his first touchdown of the 2020 season. The surprise is how uncompetitive this game was on the Packers. And I don't believe the Bucks are that much better than the Packers. I just think the Packers were enjoying their off week a little too much and forgot they had a game. That's what it felt like anyway. The other surprise was the Cardinals 38 to 10 whooping of the Cowboys from Monday night. You know, much like I said about Brady, Kyler Murray's performance didn't seem statistically dominant. Um, I think he threw for 188 yards and two touchdowns. The story is the lack of performance by the Cowboys. You know, I get it. Your leader is down. But Dak was putting up video game-like numbers through five weeks, and you were still losing. I also know Cowboy fans have been screaming about getting the ball with Zeke more. I think he had 12 touches for 49 yards. But I don't think Zeke is your answer. Yes, you do need to run the ball more, but you also have playmakers on the outside with CeeDee Lamb, Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, and Terrence Pollard. Use them. Plus, get your defense together because all that scoring is in vain if you can't stop anyone. You know, I wrote in my 2020 outlook that the Cowboys had the talent to win the NFC East and to make it all the way to the NFC Championship game, but that I didn't trust them to get it done. After the coaching change in the offseason, bringing in a Super Bowl winning coach in Mike McCarthy and still looking as bad as they did at times in 2019, I just wonder if Dallas has figured out the root cause of their issue. Look, I'm not a Cowboys fan. I'm a Browns fan. And yeah, I'm going to talk about them next. But I know enough about the Cowboys to know the star on their helmet, much like the stars on the Steelers helmets or the spear on the Chiefs helmet. It means a lot to their fan base. It's a symbol and standard of excellence for these franchises. Cowboy fans expect their players to bring their very best every single week. And yes, they face a level of scrutiny higher than most other teams. And that comes with the legacy. I just don't think the fans are seeing it. And that's most worrisome of all. Yes, there is such a thing as bad breaks and tough schedules. Losing Dak is a big blow. But Dak's loss is not your biggest issue. Your lack of competitiveness is. Finally, I want to talk about my beloved and perplexing Cleveland Browns, who were humiliated by the Steelers 38-7, which is almost as bad as what they lost to the Ravens by in week one, 38-6. I'm not going to bother to recap the stats from that game. But I will tell you a warning sign for me was in some of the pregame talk I heard from several Browns players thinking this would be a regular quote unquote Steelers matchup. This being the first game since the infamous helmet tossing incident involving Miles Garrett and Mason Rudolph back in week 10 of last year. I don't know if the Browns were just playing coy or attempting to downplay any lingering drama I just would have prepared my team to face the Steelers' wrath, and it didn't appear like they did. Ultimately, 
the Browns are going to have to win games against teams like the Steelers and the Ravens if they want to make the playoffs and be seen as a serious contender. I know we are just learning how to win, but oftentimes your window of impact is short and you have to strike while you have the pieces. There's no guarantee Landry or OBJ are in the Browns long-term plans or vice versa. You know, I feel like OBJ is starting to reach a point where each loss inches him closer to the exit. And I don't blame him. He is in his prime and I believe he wants to be considered a Hall of Famer one day. You can't get there with four targets and two receptions for 25 yards. As for his comments. Were you worried, though, about a positive test or anything like that? What was kind of going through your mind through that whole process? Um, no, not in an arrogant way. I just don't think COVID can get to me. Um, I don't think it's going to enter this body. Uh, I don't want no parts of it. It don't want no parts of me. I think it's a mutual respect. So, Listen to the rest of the clip in context. In my maturity level, I felt like it was the right thing to do to mention. I may not have been feeling well. I just wouldn't want it to spread throughout the whole building. If there was a case that I would have possibly had it, I was just trying to be an adult and be precautious about the situation and um, try and handle it the right way. I hate the media sometimes, but their job is to tell stories, not necessarily the truth. And one more point for all of you Baker Mayfield haters just shut up and let the kid play. If we were two and four, you would be trying to compare him to every other failed Cleveland quarterback anyway. But we're winning, and he is a factor. Does he need to reduce his turnovers? Yes. Does he need to get the ball to Landry and OBJ more? Perhaps. Does he need to stop doing so many commercials? No, I enjoy those. He just needs to win games. In today's NFL, that's the benchmark all quarterbacks are judged by. Except Ryan Fitzpatrick. A quick break, and then my thoughts on his benching and some pivotal Week 7 games to watch. Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. <laughs> Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. So take a moment to make your kid laugh because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. If you're worried your friend may be struggling, remember, you don't have to be there to be there. You could say how while you will get a fake tattoo. You could ask with an app if it works for you. You could chat on the game, kick off your flip flops. You could ask on your couch while you binge watch. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Reach out to a friend about their mental health. Learn how you can help at SeizeTheAwkward.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the Jed Foundation. Here, we talk sports and stuff. Join the conversation, www.theteam.media, or Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Team LLC. Welcome back. Before the break, I said I would give you my thoughts on the benching of Ryan Fitzpatrick. First, here's a clip of him speaking about finding out he had actually been benched. My heart just hurt all day. Like it was, it was heartbreaking for me. Um, you know, and I, 
Coach Flo kind of said what he said and said what he said to you guys as well. And that's the decision and the direction that the organization is going in. And obviously, you know, we've talked in the past, uh, me and you guys, about, you know, how I'm the placeholder. And this eventually was going to happen no matter – it was just a matter of kind of when, not if. And um, it still just it, – it broke my heart yesterday. And, um, you know, it's a tough – uh, tough thing for for me to hear and to now have to deal with, but um, you know I'm going to do my best with it. You know I have no idea if I fall in the minority or majority on this issue, but I disagree strongly disagree with the benching of Ryan Fitzpatrick at this juncture of the season. So far this season, he has thrown for fifteen hundred and twenty five yards, ten touchdowns, seven interceptions but still good enough for a 79.6 quarterback rating, which is seventh in the league. Most importantly, the Dolphins have won three out of their last four games and are three and three, currently sitting in second in the AFC East, a division no one not named Brady has won in what feels like forever. I don't think it's wise to take out the guy who is winning you games and who has built a good chemistry and has a command of your offense nor is it wise to put the rookie in an untenable position to have to be great from the start. I know Tua is used to playing for winning organizations, given his illustrious college career at Alabama, where he went 22-2, and two, throwing for over 7,400 yards, 87 touchdowns, and had a career completion percentage of 69%, all top three in Alabama history. But that will mean nothing if he struggles and loses games. I just don't think it's a fair situation for either guy. If Fitzpatrick were 1-5 or 0-6, I could understand the move. But Ryan has demonstrated he belongs as the Dolphins starting quarterback for now. If he plays himself out of the role, then you can insert Tua. I just think you're just setting him up for failure. Now, if Tua plays lights out and the Dolphins win the division, this will all be a mute point. And let's hope that's what happens. Now transitioning to week seven slate of games, this week has kicked off with a classic NFC East rivalry on Thursday night. The Giants losing to the Eagles 22-21. Daniel Jones turning a lot of heads in that game, rushing for, I believe, 90 yards, 80 of them coming on one play where he showed us a glimpse of that sub 4-5 speed. I think there were like six minutes left in the game. The Giants were up 21-10. And I thought to myself, there is no way the Giants are going to give up two scores to the Eagles and lose, right? Right? (laughs) Those last six minutes were ugly with dumb penalties and just boneheaded defensive play. The bottom line is teams who don't know how to close out games and win know how to lose. I won't beat the Giants up too much, though, because everyone expected this to be a rebuilding year for them. And the truth is the NFC East is so bad they're still not out of it technically. A string of wins and they're right back in this. Good win for the Eagles. I just don't think this should have been as tough of a game for them. Games I'll be watching this week include the Falcons and Lions. I want to see if the Falcons can carry any momentum into this week after a dominant performance last week against the Vikings. The Steelers-Titans game should not be a one o'clock game, but it's a matchup of two of the last three undefeated teams in the league. You know, I want to see if Derrick Henry can run over the Steelers defense as he has everyone else so far. That will be a tough matchup for both teams. Bills, Jets, 
Only because the Bills have lost two straight and need to right the ship to remain atop the AFC East, especially with the Dolphins on a bye. Patriots Niners, it's a must win for Cam Newton and the Patriots. They are only two and three, but the Pats are not used to losing and things could turn ugly there if they go two and four. They have a rough test against the Niners who look like they're starting to return to form on offense. Cowboys at Washington, another must win, this time for the Cowboys. You have to win division games, period. And I think the coach came out the other day and said as much. You got to focus on the division. I think the game of the day will be the Seahawks and Cardinals. I just think it's going to be a shootout. The team that needs to win the most this weekend, in my heavily biased opinion, are my beloved Cleveland Browns. You know, I know many people are looking at them as some weird anomaly at four and two. And that opinion may not change, even if they win. But there could be some significant psychological damage if they lose. You know, when a team is learning how to win, that momentum from winning is important to reinforce good habits, keep locker room morale high, and focused. The Bengals game is winnable, and they should win. If they lose, I'll just be a little concerned about where they truly are as a team. I don't think they have been 5-2 since coming back into the league, so let's go dog pound. Finally, 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 news broke on Friday that Antonio Brown had signed a one-year deal to join the Buccaneers. It was reported earlier in the week that he might be hooking up with Russell Wilson and the Seahawks, but the Bucs signing makes sense, especially when you consider the brief history of A.B. and Brady in New England. See, a lot of you forgot about that. And the fact that the Bucks need another receiving threat to compliment Mike Evans. The moment I heard there was even some interest in the league in AB, I went ahead and added him to my fantasy lineup. He's a deep threat option and will get more touches in Tampa than he would in Seattle. It's a one year deal, so the Bucks can cut their losses if it doesn't work out. And meanwhile, AB can make his case for still being worth elite money with a solid performance for the rest of this season. He doesn't get to play until week nine, so be patient for those of you who want to add him to your fantasy lineup. All in all, to me, it's as close to a win-win for two teams as you can get. Okay, a quick break, and then my thoughts on the retirement of a hockey great. If you're worried your friend may be struggling, remember, you don't have to be there to be there. You could say how while you will get a fake tattoo. You could ask with an app if it works for you. You could chat on the game, kick off your flip flops. You could ask on your couch while you binge watch. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Reach out to a friend about their mental health. Learn how you can help at seizetheawkward.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the Jed Foundation. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy. Yeah. Your football buddy. Or you, your best man. Your worst man. You, your dog walker. Your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Here, we talk sports and stuff. Join the conversation, www.theteam.media, or Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Team LLC. 
Well, for a further look at tonight's game, let's go inside. Mike Emmerich and the coach, Bob McCammon. Thank you, Chief and Ed. I don't know what you were doing on Labor Day of last year, 210 days ago, but this guy was at the Cumberland County Civic Center in Portland. Live on Sports Channel, the first ever television coverage of the NHL entry draft in the United States. I'm Mike Emmerich from the floor of this entry draft, and this is always an exciting time, not only for the players and for the teams, but for fans of hockey all across North America. Rodor controlling the net. Didn't make it. Oh man, are the moons aligned strange tonight? What is going on? There is potential for mayhem, ladies and gentlemen, out there right now. It walks right around in front. Oh, a remarkable save by Brodeur. Don Fuss was at the side of the net. Penalty shot. Penalty shot. Midst the smoke of all the pregame theatrics. The goaltenders have taken their positions in the crease. This may come as a surprise to many of you, especially since I have not done any segments on hockey to date. But I do actually watch hockey from time to time throughout the season and the playoffs. In fact, I've actually been to a few Rangers games at the Garden back when I worked and lived on the East Coast. Playoff hockey is especially exciting when you're watching it from home and the game is being called by the great Doc Emirate who announced his retirement back on October 19th after 47 years. As a fan of sports and not just teams, I can appreciate greatness in whatever form it comes. And to me, great announcers have an ability to add context and excitement to a game you might otherwise not watch or understand. I could listen to Doc call a game for hours and never get tired of listening to him. Not only was his delivery always quick and sharp, But he was witty, funny, and poignant, often sometimes all in the same game. He spent 47 years covering the game he loved and doing it with a style that will not be duplicated. I may have never met you, Mike, but we here at the team want to congratulate you on a wonderful career. I also want to relay that watching a game, for me, won't be the same without having you on the play-by-play. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Sports and Stuff podcast. Again, we thank you for taking the time to listen. Continue to spread the word about this show. We are absolutely nothing. Zero, nilch, nada. Without your continued love and support, hit us up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Team LLC. Let us know what you think of this show. Let us know your take on our topics. The same on our website, www.theteam.media. We want to know what you think we want to hear from you. We'll be back next week with an all new edition. And until then, remember.